0: Hey, it's Greg Brown. Grab your logbook cuz it's time for another cockpit adventure from the Flying Carpet. I'm an aviation author, adventure columnist, photographer, former National Flight Instructor of the Year, and Barnes and Noble Arizona Author of the Month. The Flying Carpet is a four-place single-engine light airplane. In it, my wife Jean and I have long traveled the North American continent, searching behind clouds for the real America and experiencing aerial adventures like today's all along the way. Learn more at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, where you can also see photos from most episodes. And I'd appreciate your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. A few notes before we start. First, for you pilots, I want to mention that my definition of a successful mission is not necessarily whether I reach my intended destination. Rather, it's whether I can proceed and land somewhere, anywhere, safely. That approach allows me to take off for even uncertain destinations so long as I have safe en route weather and good landing alternates. For you non-pilots and non-mariners, I want to mention aviation winds are forecast and reported in knots. One knot equals approximately 1.14 statute miles per hour. So, for example, 40 knots is a little over 45 miles per hour. Okay, everyone. Hop aboard my flying carpet. Buckle your seatbelts good and tight, and prepare for takeoff on today's adventure. Inches of runway. Clear prop. Because wind is invisible, it rarely seems as threatening as other weather when you're flight planning, especially under clear skies. But as every pilot learns, wind is real. Like other weather features, it can be helpful or hazardous, and often pretends changing weather conditions. We had long planned to fly from Flagstaff to Tucson to enjoy Christmas Day with vacationing relatives, but had been monitoring an approaching winter storm system for days. From early on, it appeared unlikely we could go. Snow was forecast through the entire period, urged along by a powerful cold front and followed by bitterly cold temperatures. Indeed, Christmas morning dawned to snow and blustery winds. Good thing we're invited to a post-Christmas gathering here in the neighborhood tomorrow night, observed Jean. otherwise we'd spend the whole holiday period alone. Upon checking the day's forecast, however, I was surprised to learn that despite the current wintry conditions, Flagstaff expected mid-morning clearing with improving weather to the south as well. Sure enough, at the stroke of 10 a.m., sun suddenly warmed our yard, blue sky pierced the clouds, and ceilings rose almost simultaneously along our route. So we contacted everyone involved and packed for overnight since we'd be departing late for our Christmas day in Tucson. Those less familiar with Arizona may be surprised to hear all this talk of snow. Topographically, the state is divided roughly in half. The more populated southwest portion, including Balmy, Tucson and Phoenix, is warm, low desert while the sparsely populated northeast features four seasons on a high plateau. Flagstaff lies at 7,000 feet above sea level, about 25 miles onto that plateau at the base of the state's tallest mountain, 12,633 foot Humphreys Peak. Snowfall here annually averages about 100 inches. Therefore, on a typical winter day, one might wear a parka and boots in Flagstaff, but shorts and swimwear in desert Tucson. Yet by flying carpet, they're only 90 minutes apart. It's not easy packing for cross-country travel in a state that often produces the nation's high and the nation's low on the same day. Quickly, Jean and I gathered both warm and cold weather clothes and then launched for Tucson. Cloud ceilings lowered as we flew south, but so did the terrain, so we enjoyed a pleasant and uneventful flight to Tucson's private La Joya Air Park. It was a little cool for swimming, but we still enjoyed a desert walk, hanging out at the pool, and a delightful holiday dinner with my brother's family. Based on a sunny forecast, Jean and I planned to brunch with local Tucson friends the next morning and then hike in the desert before flying home. But when we woke up on the morning of the 26th, I discovered an email alert from the Flagstaff newspaper warning of 50-mile-per-hour winds in bitterly cold temperatures by afternoon. It looks nasty for flying home this afternoon, I said to Jean. Shall we renew our hotel room for another night? but she was eager to get back for the evening's neighborhood party. To do so meant departing immediately in hopes of beating the worst of the winds. Despite yesterday's clear-for-days prognosis, Flagstaff's aviation forecast now called for morning snow showers and surface winds gusting by midday to 40 knots. Fortunately, clear skies and light surface winds dominated most of our route but we had to be prepared to land elsewhere depending on Flagstaff's weather conditions at arrival time. What's more, 40-knot headwinds would plague our normal 8,500-foot cruising altitude for the entire route home. When ridgetop winds exceed 25 or 30 knots, they tumble like river rapids over mountainous terrain rather than flowing smoothly so in high mountain areas like Colorado, we would never take off into 40-knot winds aloft. Fortunately, the only really high mountains along this route were near our destination. Still, this could be a heck of a rough ride, but Gene was eager to head home. We phoned our planned brunch companions with regrets and begged to ride from relatives to the airport. Of course, this departure rush alarmed our relatives so I invested precious minutes assuring them that there was no danger. If we couldn't safely land at Flagstaff, we'd have no problem safely landing somewhere else. Temperatures were still below freezing when we arrived at La Air Park, rare in normally toasty Tucson, and we scraped frost from the plane before scrambling into clear skies at 8.30 a.m., At takeoff time, our Flagstaff destination reported one to three miles visibility in snow showers. Fortunately, the snow impacted only the last 20 miles of our route, where cold temperatures and a 3,000-foot ceiling would allow an instrument approach if necessary without the need to enter ice-laden clouds. The rest of the route, as I mentioned earlier, was clear. So my first concern was beating the worst of the winds aloft and at landing time we also needed to be prepared to land elsewhere if necessary. If we couldn't get into Flagstaff, our closest alternate of Sedona would likely also be unavailable due to strong winds battering the rugged terrain of that area. But with five hours of fuel aboard, the flying carpet could easily divert to any number of fair weather alternatives. So regardless of whether we made our home airport, I didn't doubt for our safety. After takeoff, I flew a dog-legged course west of our normal straight-line route, detouring over lower terrain to stay below the strongest headwinds until our final minutes approaching 7,000-foot elevation Flagstaff. We cruised at 4,500 feet from Tucson to Scottsdale, making reasonable headway against the wind. The ride became stressfully rough, however, as we flew downwind of the rugged Superstition and Mazatzal mountain ranges. We cinched our belts almost painfully tight to keep from bumping heads against the ceiling. But there was good news, too. When I checked weather crossing Scottsdale Airport, with an eye toward possibly landing there if necessary, Flagstaff featured 17-knot winds gusting to 28 knots directly down Runway 3 well within my comfort range. However, northeasterly winds tumbling down from the nearby mountains still raised turbulence concerns for arrival time. As we continued northward through the Verde Canyon and the Verde Valley, now at 6,500 feet, snow showers appeared beyond Sedona, but our destination improved to nine miles visibility. However, when we climbed to 8,500 feet for the final miles to clear the Coconino Plateau approaching Flagstaff, our ground speed plummeted to a stunningly slow 74 knots, translating to a 65-knot headwind. Expecting the worst, we secured loose cockpit items and retightened our seatbelts. Surprisingly, though, apart from the occasional teeth-rattling jolt, the ride wasn't too bad. Mostly light to occasional moderate turbulence without any control issues. Flagstaff's recorded weather updated to clear skies as we approached, so the snow was no longer a factor but they now reported 28-knot winds gusting to 42 knots, still directly down the runway. The recorded weather also featured an ominous end note I had never before heard. Swirling winds and gusty conditions reported on short final for runway 3. Concerned, I investigated alternate landing sites. Strong winds indeed ruled out nearby Sedona and Williams. Winslow, however, 50 miles to the east and 2,000 feet lower, boasted clear skies and mild 11-knot winds. It's unlikely we'll be landing in Flagstaff, I informed Gene, then a prized Phoenix approach of our plan should we need flight following to Winslow. Gene and I had already emotionally prepared ourselves for that possibility. We'd lodge and dine at Winslow's renowned La Posada Hotel. Except for the ominous winds, this proved to be as beautiful a flying day as an aviator could imagine. Flagstaff and the nearby San Francisco peaks sparkled with new fallen snow, while a lingering band of sun-sprinkled snow showers glittered to the east. I radioed Flagstaff Tower inbound for landing, explaining that we anticipated diverting to Winslow unless our approach proved unexpectedly smooth. With my landing clearance, the controller reported 28-knot winds gusting to 35, still right down the runway. That was still powerful, but less threatening than before in maximum speed and gust factor. Turning final, I was surprised to encounter relatively smooth air and steady winds versus the usual rock-and-roll ride when landing into northeasterly winds tumbling off the mountains. That, of course, could change momentarily, but for now we enjoyed a nice stabilized approach, though very slow due to the headwind. Down and down I flew, carrying a slight crab and partial landing flaps, prepared at any moment to go around and divert to Winslow because surely something bad was about to happen. But other than the illusion of moving ground due to blowing snow, it didn't. We continued smoothly all the way to the pavement, touched down at a crawl due to the headwind, and made the first turnoff without even applying brakes. Two hours of worries and planning had culminated in a non-event. You made that look easy, said the tower controller. I replied that we had anticipated far worse and had fully expected to divert. No one wants to go to Winslow, he quipped as we departed the runway. Frankly, from takeoff this morning, Jean and I had never imagined we'd actually make it home, much less after hearing those reported winds 20 minutes out. Having skipped breakfast in the departure rush, we were suddenly starving. It was 19 degrees Fahrenheit when we shut down at the hangar with a forecast high of 21 degrees. Add the chill from all that wind and it was cold. Fortunately, we carried lots of winter gear in the cockpit. We bundled in our warmest coats before climbing out and stowed the flying carpet. Then, as the car warmed up, I texted my local flight instructor buddy, Freddie Gibbs, about today's hellacious winds. How many inches of runway did you use for landing, he asked. Two or three, I replied. Then Jean and I drove home to save her homemade omelets and a pot of hot coffee. I hope none of you bumped your heads riding along with Jean and me through all that turbulence. Thanks for riding along on today's Flying Carpet adventure. Please help me continue this podcast by sharing your favorite Flying Carpet episodes on social media, posting reviews on your favorite podcast directories, and donating via my Greg Brown Flying Carpet website. Thanks in advance for your support. You can find photos from most episodes at my website, gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please check out my book of aviation adventure stories, Flying Carpet, The Soul of an Airplane, for which I was named Barnes & Noble, Arizona Author of the Month. Learn about that and my other aviation books at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com. Also at gregbrownflyingcarpet.com, you'll find my views from the Flying Carpet Aerial Photography, available in fine art metal prints and pilot achievement plaques. Oh. And I'd appreciate hearing your feedback in my Flying Carpet Podcast Facebook group. Follow my social media sites, most of which can be found by searching Greg Brown Flying Carpet. And consider joining my student pilot pep talk group on Facebook. Thanks again for joining me on today's Flying Carpet Cockpit Adventure. Music by Hannes Brown. See you next time.